Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And we are continuing our hot streak of Patreon shoutouts. Thank you to Emily, Ashley, and Bart for subscribing over at Patreon. Three new Patreon friends. What a bonanza. Ah, We're so thrilled. So you too can join our growing family of subscribers at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast and In return, you will get the monthly newsletter and bonus episodes. This week, we bring you a topic with a title that has been making us laugh for months now. (laughs) Fortunately, our topic is more substantive than just a joke title and as, you know, shades of fish people. (laughs) And it's something, or rather someone, who captures the public imagination every time he hits the news. And he's celebrating an anniversary. OMG, you guys, it's Utsi. That's right. The Copper Age Ice Mummy immortalized as a tattoo on Brad Pitt's arm. And other places. But more importantly, and <laughs> an individual whose preserved remains have been a treasure trove of information about how people lived in the Alpine region of Europe during the Chalcolithic or Copper Age around 5,500 years ago. And I want to introduce Utsi to you all... <laughs> Through a paragraph from the South Tyrol Museum of Archaeology, which is the institution that currently houses the Iceman's remains, quote, Utsi, the Iceman, is a man of superlatives. Utsi is the world's oldest wet mummy, and the clothes he wore and equipment he carried are unique. The mummy is invaluable for archaeology and archaeotechnology, as well as for medical science, genetics, biology, and many other disciplines, end quote. Wet mummy. Ugh. Mm. So who was this wet mummy? How did he oh, live? Stop saying it. <laughs> Wait, what is a wet mummy? Uh, a wet mummy. Don't say it. What is it? A wet mummy is a a mummy that is preserved in conditions that are not desiccating. So you have the Peruvian ones and desert ones that are completely dried out, but Utsi and, for example, bog bodies that are found in in Scandinavia and in Bronze Age uh, Europe. Um, This is a a wet environment that, for whatever reason, preserves a body. So what about what about like mummified, like intentionally mummified, like in Egypt, like when they are embalmed? Those are purposely dried out Mm. using natron. That's what the natron is for. It's a drying agent. It's salt. Okay. So they aren't wet wet mummy. They're not wet mummy. (laughs) Okay. Oh, don't say it. (laughs) Okay. So Utsi is a wet mummy. But how did he live? How did he die? What have we learned from him? We learned that we don't like the term wet mummy. I've already learned something from him. 
First, let's set the scene by zooming out a little bit and talking about what people were doing in general during the Copper Age in the area between Austria and Italy, where Uzi lived, at least during the later part of his life. So the Copper Age in general is kind of mixed in with the Neolithic. They are concurrent, overlapping. And copper metallurgy was likely developed in northern Mesopotamia, the earliest known... Well, and also, Anna, Mm -hmm. we've talked about the Calcolithic before. We have. We talked about it with um, the old copper complex. In the Americas, episode 135 of this podcast. And so so things like Calcolithic and Neolithic are more... You're more likely to see them in what people call the old world. So you're, you're more likely to see them in, um, Asia, Europe, and Africa. Mm -hmm. Am I correct in that takeaway? Yeah. I mean, at least, and, and all of these are designations given well after the fact as a reference to the types of materials that you see in the archaeological record. So like they, the people here weren't saying, ah, yes, a beautiful day today in the Calcolithic. That's not how they were thinking about their lives. Um, but they were using copper (laughs) and copper metallurgy was likely developed in Northern Mesopotamia. The earliest known sites are in Syria, such as Tel Halaf about 6,500 years BCE. And the technology was known considerably longer ago than that. Isolated copper axes and adzes are known from Chatelhuyuk in Anatolia and Jarmo in Mesopotamia by 7500 BCE. But that's not necessarily what you'd call a, a copper complex. The intensive rather than occasional production of copper tools is really one of the hallmarks of the Calcolithic. So again, okay. the Calcolithic also occurs in the Americas, despite what some researchers would have to say about that. Yeah. So go listen to episode 135 after this one. And Jarmo, if I remember correctly, Jarmo Mm -hmm. was a site that was excavated by the archaeologist doctors uh, Braidwood. Yes. Both of them. Yeah. Yes. Doctor and Dr. Braidwood. Correct. Yeah. From our Indiana Jones Um, episode. If you were to invite them to your wedding. (laughs) Doctor and doctor. Yes. Oh, you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, And so that was what we discussed uh, earlier, the Indiana Jones episode. Earlier this summer, and yeah. the Indiana Jones episode. Mm-hmm. I'm just really, I'm all about the callbacks today. No, I'm I, trying to. I like it. Expunge the word, the words from my mind. Okay, so just well. By around six thousand years ago, the Copper Age lifestyle was making its way into Europe. Keep in mind that this is a broad pattern of behavior that shows up in the archaeological record across a very large geographic span, encompassing lots of different groups of people. So not everybody did the Copper Age stuff exactly the same way. Individual cultural developments were as unique then as with any selected cultures today. People took advantage of their local resources, and there was a mix between more sedentary farming lifestyles and slightly more hunter-gatherer nomadic practices. People mixed it up depending on their needs, but we do see a few commonalities, especially as we get farther into the more sedentary periods. There was considerable cultural homogeneity in house form, settlement organization, and subsistence practice among early farming societies in Central Europe. In contrast, the late Neolithic, which again, kind of mixes with the, the Copper Age, they overlap. There's a Venn diagram. Uh, and it's a period of increasing cultural diversity and complexity. 
You see change in economy, settlement, society, rituals, and beliefs. And these adaptations include technological advances, the appearance of settlement hierarchies, the mining of flint, agricultural innovations, and ecological change. Wagons, simple plows, horse riding, metallurgy, and wool production made their first appearance in Central Europe at this time. So, what a time to be alive. Horse riding, What a time to be a horse. Plows. And at one point in this area, between what is today Austria and Italy, Utsi was indeed alive. And Utsi wasn't what he called himself. We don't know his real name. He's named for the area where he was found. So speaking of that area, what did it look like in the vicinity of the Tyrolean Alps, or the Utsal Alps, 5,500 years ago? The authors of a paper published in the journal Nature used an innovative technique to analyze the Weissespitze Glacier. That's fun to say. It's... It's Weiss-Z-Spitze. 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 Yeah. You, I noticed the last time we attempted to record this, you dropped the Z. The Weiss-Z-Spitze. Yeah, thanks. Otherwise, it's just White-Spitze. Well, anyway, it's a glacier, and it's less than 20 kilometers <laughs> from the site where Utsi was found. At this site, scientists were able to reconstruct what the summits of the Utsal Alps, near the border between Austria and Italy, might have looked like thousands of years ago. They found evidence that the summits of these mountains have been covered in glaciers since approximately 3,880 BCE, about 5,900 years ago, and around 400 years before Utsi died. Because, spoiler so, alert, uh, he died. That means... So that means, oh, uh, I guess I can stop listening now since I know how it ends. Um, so 400 years before he died, he was covered. not a 400-year-old man. <laughs> no, 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 I got that part. Okay, great. Uh, so the glaciers that are still here in the, well, for now, in the Oztel Alps, oh. <laughs> were already there uh-huh. well before his lifetime. Correct. And... The so reason- it was just as it was glaciery then. Yes, but at different mm-hmm. elevations. So even what? during glacial phases, there is still climate fluctuation. And during interglacial, the warmer okay. phases as well. So the the peaks of these mountains have always been glaciated because the highest points are the coldest. Um, but the rest of the mountains have sort of been in flux, whether the, the ice expands down all the way or not. And so mm-hmm. to understand how that ice has moved over time and what it looked like when Utsi was alive, um, the researchers used samples of the deepest ice at the top of the glacier. So that's going to be the oldest. And they were able to obtain dates and other information like pollen samples that indicated what the ice cover in the area might have looked like when Utsi was around. And so their conclusions were that the region would have been entering a glacial phase when the mountains and passes were beginning to ice over at the high peaks while pine forests occupied the lower slopes. And so these conditions definitely explain some of the things that Utsi was wearing and carrying. Before we get to that, I have another question. Yeah, hit me. Um, it's about the glacier. Okay. Um, so you say the deepest ice at the top of the glacier. Yes. What is top? So is the, it the point that's furthest from the the mountains on either side? Not totally sure what a glacier is. So the, the glacier TBH. in this case, the, the Weissespitze, is a glacier with a domed top. And it's, so it's where um, two ice flows, two glacial ice flows meet. 
And so you have this kind of divide at the glacier. I mean, it's not an actual divide. There's no canyon or line or anything, but you have this point at which these two flows are meeting and um, forming this kind of dome where you don't get runoff. And so the ice that accumulates at this dome is an accurate representation of accumulated rainfall and, and ice melt over the years because it doesn't go away. It doesn't wash down the sides of the glacier. Okay. And so by boring down okay. at this point, they can the researchers can be reasonably sure that they are getting a record of the actual glacial ice that has been around for however many years the, the sample turns out to be. Um, once okay. they once they actually date it. Yeah. All right. Well thank you. Thank you. And that brings us to thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Utsi, mm. the man himself. So come with me now, listeners, and Anna. I'm here too. To a bright, cold day in September 1991, when two hikers, Erika and Helmut Simon from Nuremberg, Germany, are descending a trail through the Utsal Alps. As they did so, they decided to take a shortcut off the beaten path, which you should not do, even if when they did it, I mean, it turned out Changed fine for them. History. Don't, yeah, but don't, don't do, do that. Don't do that. When they did this, they noticed something brown sticking out of the ice. <laughs> that could go so many ways. Not many of them are fun. Like, no. Well, quoting from a ThoughtCo article now. <laughs> Upon further inspection, the Simons discovered that it was a human corpse. Although they could see the back of the head, arms, and back, the bottom of the torso was still embedded in the ice. The Simons took a picture and then reported their discovery at the nearest equivalent of a ranger station. Yeah, I don't think they're called ranger stations in the Alps. (laughs) At the time, however, the Simons and the authorities all thought the body belonged to a modern man who had recently suffered a deadly accident, end quote. Um, And now (laughs) I will quote a line that is written... As if the author has quite a bit of experience in this department. And maybe they do. Who am I to say? I just, this line jumped out at me just like, huh. Removing a frozen body that stuck in the ice at 10,530 feet, 32 10 meters, above sea level is never easy. Thank you. So keep that in mind, folks. Yeah. Well, I hope it never comes up for me, frankly. (laughs) Had enough experience in that department. To last me. Oh, gosh. True. Um, Continuing the quote from ThoughtCo. Adding bad weather and a lack of proper excavation equipment made the job even more difficult. After four days of trying, Utsi's body was finally removed from the ice on September 23rd, 1991. Sealed up in a body bag, because remember, we thought that he was a Yeah, at the time this was treated as a a modern death, yes. Yeah. Uh, Utsi was flown via helicopter to the town of Vent, where his body was transferred to a wooden coffin and taken to the Institute of Forensic Medicine in Innsbruck. At Innsbruck, archaeologist Conrad Spendler determined that the body found in the ice was definitely not a modern man. Oh, he was like a, <laughs> like a real, like, <laughs> traditional <laughs> type. Instead, he was at least 4,000 years old. He wasn't. Like what a day Conrad Spindler had that day. <laughs> In fact, Utzi had lived between 3350 and 3100 BCE, solidly in the range of the Chalcolithic for this region. He stood approximately five feet, three inches high, short king, and at the end of his life suffered from arthritis, gallstones, and whipworm. Oof. So he 
Yeah. Ugh. So he died at about the age of 46. Mm-hmm. Once it was realized that Utsi was an extremely important discovery, two teams of archaeologists went back to the discovery site to see if they could find more artifacts. The first team stayed only three days from October 3rd to 5th, 1991, because the winter weather was too harsh. Yeah, they're on a glacier. Talk to so. Yeah. Yep. So the second possibly better informed archaeology team waited until the following summer and they did their survey from July 20th to August 25th, 1992. So this team found numerous artifacts, including string, muscle fibers, a piece of a longbow and a bearskin hat. And just to clarify, I believe the muscle fibers were not human. They were, you know, part of something that Itzy was carrying, but not, not from him. Hmm. I, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that may be some foreshadowing. Well, yeah, it just it sort of sounded kind of ominous, just like shreds of muscle. But no, I, I, I <laughs> read on and we'll learn. So jumping off of those finds, let's talk a bit about what our boy was wearing and carrying. You know, his his EDC, his everyday carry mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. at the time of death. <laughs> He's got like a multi tool. <laughs> he kind of um, did this. Co- he kind of did. It's true. Yeah. Um, yeah. This comes from a Smithsonian Magazine write-up of a research article published in the Journal of Neolithic Archaeology. That article tells us that thanks to the glacier's preservative properties, Utzi's weapons and tools, from his doe-skin quiver to his feather-fledged arrows, kept their shape. Now they're in the world's oldest known hunting kit, which is stored at the South Tyrol Museum of Archaeology in Italy. Mm-hmm. So what really caught the researchers' attention was the Iceman's bowstring, loosely wrapped and stored in the quiver. You don't want to keep your bowstring. It ruins the bowstring. Good to know. <laughs> per Hunting season's coming up. Keep that in mind. Yeah. Per a statement from the museum, prehistoric bowstrings are among the rarest archaeological finds. The oldest known bowstrings outside of Utsis come from Egyptian graves dated to between 2200 and 1900 BCE, making the Iceman's bowstring, dated between 3300 and 3100 BCE, the oldest by a millennium. Um, And that's as if that weren't cool enough. Utsis' bowstring was made of three strands of animal sinew. Twisted into a cord. I don't. Is it sinew? Sinew. Yeah. Sinew. Okay. I never said it aloud. Um, sinew. Sinew. Twisted into a cord. Uh, according to the according, according. Uh, to the analysis. I didn't. That's not so, my uh, pun. I didn't do that. I'm not responsible. I don't think it. I don't think it's a pun. I, know. <laughs> I don't think it qualifies. So. Um, so the three strands of animal sinew is really interesting because sinew isn't very elastic. And if it gets wet, it's like immediately ruined. So it's either soggy knew something about bone. <laughs> File that under wet, wet mummy. mummy and things I don't want to hear. Uh-huh. So either he knew something about bow making that we don't. Totally possible. Sure. Or he had substandard materials to work with. Which also totally put possible. Put a pin in that. Oh. Uh-huh. Oh. Uh-huh. <laughs> I just I just got a Twitter up my spine, not a li- on my phone. A little frisson? Yes. <laughs> Utsi was also carrying a complete copper bladed axe, a flint dagger with a wicker sh- no not a wicker, not wicker. wicker sheath. <laughs> it's a real wicker man <laughs> argument. 
<laughs> it's not even wicker. It's a straw man argument. Shut up, Anna. <laughs> Two, it's so early. Two birchwood vessels, a fragmentary backpack, so a partial rucksack, yeah. and a leather pouch with various small objects like flints and arrow making tools. Mm-hmm. And how about that fit? But those clothes, <laughs> the oots couture, if you will. <laughs> Who was he wearing? Actually, that's exactly the right question to ask because researchers determined Utsi's outfit components through DNA analysis. So in order to learn more about Utsi's fashion choices, researcher Frank Meixner and his colleagues at the European Academy of Bolzano used a form of DNA analysis from mitochondrial DNA. So while most DNA is stored in chromosomes within cells in the nucleus, mitochondria contain a tiny piece of their own DNA, just in case they ever want to strike out on their own again. Oh my God. Right. I remember, um, shout out to friend of the show who like mentioned me in a oh, tweet. Yeah. 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 With like a, with like an eon, was it an eon? It was an eon. Yeah. It was just like, like, Hey, mitochondria are kind of their oh. own thing. Just living rent free in all of our cells. <laughs> And I just like stayed on the couch for a few hours after that. (laughs) Involuntary couch lock. (laughs) Um, So mitochondrial DNA is a small fraction of the total human genome. But for the scientists, it was enough to pinpoint several animals that Utsi or someone he knew, maybe, turned into specific pieces of clothing. So Itsy's shoes are made from cattle leather, from domestic cattle, which the researchers believe may have been chosen because it's longer lasting than other materials, even other leather. So it's it's thicker in general than most other available leathers. That's what you want for your shoes. So meanwhile, the mummy's black and white striped coat is made from sheep which would have provided Utsi with the most warmth compared to other available types of leather. Sheepskin, got that wool on there. His attire is also crafted from non-domesticated animals, including a deerskin quiver and a bearskin hat. Not only does it appear that different materials were chosen with a specific purpose in mind, so their functionality was was a thing, but they were also repaired using the same kind of materials instead of whatever leathers Itzy had lying around. So he took care of his stuff. And so... Uh, Frank Meissner says, quote, it's not chaotic. It's really ordered. There's a structure. There's a fashion in my eyes. So you'd see was rocking a Luke spelled L-E-O-Umlaut-W-K. Yes, <laughs> Incidentally, we know from analysis of Utsu's DNA that he had brown hair and brown eyes. So all that leather would have looked great on him. And so that's Utsu's clothing and gear. But how about food? You can't go traipsing around the Alps on an empty tummy. That's right up there with going off the beaten trail. Do not do it. And Itzy sure didn't. In fact, he's so well-preserved that the remains of his last meal were still, in fact, in his stomach and intestines. So researchers were able to have a look as soon as they found it, because his stomach went missing for a few years. Turns out it had been pushed upwards towards his lungs while he lay in the ice. It was very much not where you usually want your stomach to be. And so the researchers only found it after doing like MRI and CT scans of the body. Mm. Mm. Those investigations of the tum-tum revealed that Itzy's stomach contents were very well preserved. Researchers were able to determine that shortly before Itzy died, 
He chowed down on cooked grains and cured meat, porridge, and bacon. The team was able to identify 167 animal and plant proteins in Utsi's stomach. That's not to say that Utsi ate 167 distinct things. It's just that out of the things he ate, you know, plants and animals both have several different types of proteins. And so they determined the components of his last meal, cereals made from einkorn wheat, along with red deer and ibex meat. Notably, Utsi had also eaten a hefty serving of ibex fat. And so I've seen that in other places as like he wasn't necessarily just chowing down on solid fat. It was that the ibex itself was a fatty cut of meat like bacon. But 46% of his stomach contents were made up of animal fat residues. So, Also, he was keto. He was, yeah, he was on the keto plan. Well, the, the, the hefty serving of ibex fat, something else that it could have been. Mm-hmm. I'm just... I'm just sort of sure speculate my, Let's have eighth, it. as my eighth grade student teacher said, talking out of my elbow. Um, uh, that's, that's fun. That's fun. So a great way to get a lot of fat into something and and have it preserved so that you can eat it later is to make a sausage. A confit? Oh, a sausage. I thought you were going to thought you were going to go with confit. Um, no, because I had uh, the one time that I had horse sausage, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, which like horse is horse is not a fatty. No, it's very itself. very lean. Um, so the the sausage was you know preserved in whatever way, um, and there was just like just like a glob in the middle. Yeah, there was like a mixed fat into it, bit yeah. of fat. Uh huh. When it's not just like how fat is mixed into like a salami or something. No. Like it was just well, like even in a salami, you do fat. see those all those white splotches in salami are a little yeah. Blobs and I of don't, fat. I don't want people to think that I'm describing that. I'm describing something like larger than a like a coin. Oh, Ugh. so I see why you didn't relish that experience. I mean, it just wasn't to my taste. No, sure. Um, and, uh, but it's something that, um, and so this was shared with me as like, no, this is something that like people who are like out in the country eat and like sure. out in the country, like doing work. Yeah. Like heavy, away heavy from heavier labor, a refrigerator. Yeah. So, yeah. So this is, this, this could be something sure. I don't know, like how much we know about like calcolithic European, like how the sausage is made. Yeah. Yes. But this is a way that you would be able to get a lot of fat in something. Whereas like, if we're thinking about like jerky or something, you typically don't that get is, much fat in the jerky no, because, because the it'll go rancid. rancid. Yeah. Yeah. That might be the case or even something as simple as preserving meat in fat. Like this is thousands of years later, but you get like in Victorian times, you get like potted hair and things where you just have like stewed meat, but then it's like sealed off with a giant glob of fat. That technique goes way, 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 way back. Um, yeah. And the, the yeah. fat seals off the whatever container you're keeping it in and and uh, keeps any yeah. oxygen out. So yeah, lots of options. But but whatever the case, he had dried meat with him and he had some of that meat was very fatty. Yeah. And also, I am livid with you that you skipped the joke that you included because I thought of an answer. Well, <laughs> let me go back. <laughs> no, it's okay. No, I just no. Needed to, I just needed to to speak my truth. No, no. And that I had it's an answer important. last night, but I had cut out. And so it sounded like I iced you out and I was so mad. Yeah, well, that wasn't <laughs> your fault. Well, I. it's important to me that your needs are met. So you know how Utsi's <laughs> stomach went missing? 
and then it was in his lungs. So we have the phrase in English, my heart dropped into my stomach to kind of express shock or dismay. So what's the emotion associated with my stomach jumped into my lungs? That emotion is when you're in San Francisco and you look on Google Maps and you're like, oh, it's only like three blocks to this place. And then you turn the corner and it's one of those extremely steep hills. Ah, let me get out my crampons. Yes. <laughs> and ascend this peak. And like, and my, and my inhaler. Yeah. Um, I too have been yeah, to San that, Francisco. That moment of when yeah. you're just like, oh, oh. No, this is, that's hard. <laughs> it's going to be so hard. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I'm glad we went back to that. That is when my stomach jumps into my lungs. <laughs> In just anticipation of, oh no, my lungs. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So uh, back to Utsi's fatty bacon. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm here for you, bud. I'm sure our listeners appreciate that we did that. Oh, sure. Your friend and mine, Frank You could Meissner. edit it so that it like comes in. I'm not going right to do that. Place. I, I'm not going to do that. Your friend and mine, Frank Meissner, says the Iceman's greasy last supper totally makes sense. Because he lived in a cold, high alpine region, Utsi would have needed to maintain high energy and nutrient supplies to avoid rapid energy loss and starvation. And so he seems to have yeah. figured out the best diet for thriving in this harsh environment. A mix of carbs, protein, and high energy animal fats. Uh, side note. Not really apropos of anything, except that it's interesting. We also know, thanks to this same research, that Utsi was lactose intolerant and had type O blood. This is my dad. You know, not <laughs> he, he looks nothing like him, except that if you if you Google the artist's reconstruction of Utsi, he is like, you know, a sort of whipcord thin, jacked older guy. So, oh, this is my dad. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> Yeah, it's like your proto your dad, um, huh. but but hope, hopefully this part isn't your dad. A diet high in fatty meats would also explain why Utsi was in poor cardiovascular health. Uh, a recently published study showed that he had hardened plaque around his heart, putting him at risk for a heart attack. But then again, this sort of high fat, well, that ibex fat, keto y diet um, might not have been his everyday. It might not have been. Everyday foods. It might have only been sometimes foods. He may have specifically been fueling up for a trek through the mountain passes. And astoundingly, we know exactly which mountain passes he took on his trip, thanks to the forensic contributions of Moss. Let's take a quick what? ad break. Who? And then find out more. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. 
Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. We're back. And I've been looking at Otzi. That reconstruction is he, he's he's cheeky. He's turning to face the camera like, hey, he come, he come yeah, here often. It's like beguiling. So we're in the mountains looking at some moss. That sounds Doesn't nice. that sound nice? Sounds very restful. That sounds really nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when Utsi's body was removed from the ice, researchers recovered thousands of scraps of moss and liverworts, a group known as bryophytes. Yep, bryophytes. Bryophytes from the area where he rested. Other bits of moss were found inside of him. For a new paper in the journal PLOS One, James Dixon at the University of Glasgow and his colleagues decided to identify the plants found in the mountain ice to see what they revealed about Otzi's travels. And maybe his moss eating habits? Yeah, because he had, it wasn't just like moss was in his tissues. He had some in his, in his like digestive tract. Yeah. And so we, also, with Otzi, do I remember correctly that there was evidence of two different meals? Yes. Yeah. So there was that material had, in his stomach eaten. and then some in his intestine. Yeah. Yeah. That he had, he had like had a snack mm-hmm. shortly before his demise. And, um, and he had eaten earlier that day. Yeah. So he had a bigger meal. Okay. And then at some point he like rested and had a power bar, basically. Nice. Yeah. Um, gosh, it's just, I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm just so taken with that, that fact of just like, it's well, not just sort of like the moment of death. You, you learn about sort of the day. We will color in that picture quite a bit more in a little while. Yes. Surprisingly, the team identified 75 different species of bryophytes. Also surprising that there are that many, including 10 types of, including 10 types of liverworts, according to a press release. Not me. Not me. What a press release. Scientists say (laughs) moss. Oh, they're, they're definitely, um, (laughs) they're definitely embodying the live moss mentality. Get out. Only about 30%, just 23 species, are native to the alpine region where the body was recovered, meaning the majority of the plants were transported to the site from elsewhere. So how did they get there? It's possible that bits of some of these plants were carried on the ice man's clothes or could have been deposited in the area in the feces of large herbivores, like a like an ibex, the kind that yep. was in his tum-tum. Yep, not the but same one. two species found... <laughs> Not no, <laughs> but two species found in Utsi's digestive tract give clues to his life before he made his final climb into the mountains. Ruby Prosser Scully at New Scientist reports that the researchers found a species called Sphagnum affine, or possibly affine, affine, yeah, affine, or bog moss in Utsi's colon. Bog moss. <laughs> That species is only found in wetlands. Yeah, it's named after what a frog calls it. Mock moth. Oh my god. Also, I only read the word sphagnum for the first time like three months ago. Oh, I'm glad you prepped um, for this. 
Yeah. Well, because when I made that terrarium, I went and I was like, do you have sphagnum? And they're like, what? (laughs) At least you can go like, like, do you have sphagnum? (laughs) Sphagnum. Gosh. The team suspects it may have come from the Vinschgau Valley in South Tyrol, Italy, an area that some researchers believe Otzi called home. Because it has been has long been known to have antiseptic properties, Otzi may have used it to treat a major wound on his hand. Dun, dun, dun. Fra- oh. Fragments of another moss, Necara complanata, was also found in his intestines. That moss is a low-altitude species that grows in woodlands well below the alpine zone where Otzi was discovered. Other species found near Otzi can be traced to an area called Quartzrus uh, on to the northwest of the Schnaustall it's tough. That's a tough one. Uh, the Schnalstall Valley. It suggests that Otzi, it suggests Otzi kept the gorge as he ascended to the mountains, which would have been a difficult trek. We'll get into why he would have chosen this much more stressful route in just a minute. But who knew Moss could bring so much information to light? Not me. Amazing. Not me. Amazing. Mm. So let's cover one more aspect of Otzi's appearance before we get to the end of his story and our episode his tattoos this guy was no stranger to the ink and needle so what you call it <laughs> i'm what I, yeah the old ink I'm, and needle i'm no stranger to the ink and needle myself they'd be like oh nerd we got another nerd in here um he had a total of 61 tattoos on various parts of his body so these aren't your standard like mom and a heart or like goth mermaid they're geometric patterns that are organized into 19 different groups. Yeah, that, that one Each, tattoo that everybody has, the goth mermaid. What? I'm trying, I was just trying to think. Surely <laughs> a tiger or a panther or unnecessary tribal oh, lines. See, see, I forgot about those. Yeah, well, I wish I could. Goth mermaid. <laughs> goth mermaid. All right. The thing is, he so actually did group- have a goth mermaid on his uh, left butt cheek. No, I'm, li- I'm lying. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, each, everyone. Each, each group of tattoos is simply a set of horizontal or vertical lines. It's believe and really isn't at all. Aren't all tattoos a series of horizontal or vertical lines when you come down no, to it? Some have curves. Some lines are very short. If you mm. if you zoom in enough, is it not just? No, there's a, ge- there's a geometric lines. difference between a point and a line. I did really well in geometry and poorly in every other math. Let me have this. Okay. Sure. It's believed that the tattoos served a therapeutic or diagnostic purpose for the Iceman, which in turn might tell us something really interesting about medicinal practice in his community, because the tattoo groupings tend to cluster around the lower back and joints, places where the Iceman was suffering from joint and spinal degeneration, which we know from his remains. Yeah, so Anna, from the CT scans. Who was, who did he see? Who was his artist? Well, we what don't know that, but we do in general know how tattoos would have been made in the Neolithic. Um, and the, the needle part shouldn't be too surprising. It's a bone needle. But the oh. ink itself was typically made from charcoal, uh, you know, usually plant charcoal. But then you'd also need to mix it with the saliva of the person whom you are tattooing. And that makes it much more likely that your body won't reject that, uh, that ink because it contains material native to your body. 
So you kind of spit in a bowl, mix that up with the plant charcoal, and then that is the tattoo ink. Isn't that neat? Yeah. I mean, it's not ideal because saliva also contains bacteria from your mouth, but since tattoos are typically kind of surface wounds. Anna. Yes. Whoa. That's so cool. Yeah, I know someone. Okay. I I worked with someone on a dig who had a Neolithic style tattoo on her wrist. It's very cool. What? I want one. She's like, yeah, I went to a, whatever the Neolithic equivalent of a Renaissance fair was. Like I went to a prehistory fair and some guy was doing charcoal tattoos. Yeah, I would absolutely go to that also. Yeah. And she was like, yeah, I had to spit in this bowl and then he tattooed the circle on my wrist. Amazing. I want it. Okay, let's find one. Pretty sure oh, they're all yes. in Europe. Uh, Whatever. I feel like this one was in Belgium. Is that right? I don't know. Sounds right. Let's go to Belgium. The tattoos may have marked the locations for acupuncture treatments, or perhaps the tattoos themselves were the treatment. However, in the most recent tattoo inventory, uh, we all know somebody's <laughs> got one of those, researchers spotted a t- tattoo cluster on the Iceman's chest where there were no signs of an ailment. This newly discovered cluster could challenge prevailing theories about the purpose of the Iceman's ink. But researchers were quick to maybe he had a broken heart. Oh, mm. but also he had um, arterial plaque. So maybe he had occasional chest pains. Uh, but researchers were quick to point out that he may have suffered from other health issues that cause pain in the chest area, but that weren't recorded in the remains. I just, or, I'm going to I'm going to lean into this this idea that. That like shredded middle-aged man had also suffered heartbreak. Sure. I'm sure he did. But also uh, maybe it was like more in the sort of prophylactic sense, like, oh, yeah. giving, like, you know, lending strength, courage. Mm. I just thought he was revealing vulnerability. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> equip your character as you see fit. <laughs> so let's take one more ad break while I write fan fiction about Otsi and then we'll reach our inevitable conclusion Otsi's final hours and our final minutes of this episode yeah jeez we're fine This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. And we're back. With a bit more about Itzy the person, he had the physique of a man who did a lot of strenuous walking, but little upper body work. There's hardly any fat on his body. And he's not, like I mentioned before, I mean, you can Google Utsi Iceman Reconstruction and you'll see he's kind of like 
yoga fit almost like he's very wiry is he had yeah. all of yeah he's yeah he's not like jacked but he's he he's shredded strong. yeah what's the difference between jacked and yoked is um, yoked specifically like upper body like beefy upper body yeah and i think it i i, I think that it might well those words might belong to two different lexicons ah okay Alrighty. If you are <laughs> jacked or yoked, right in. Uh, Itzy had all of his teeth, and between his two upper front teeth was a three millimeter gap, an inherited condition known as diastema, which Madonna and Elton I'm, John also I'm have. I'm not convinced this isn't my dad. <laughs> Thank you, New York Times, for this important comparison. Yeah, why didn't they say Madonna, Elton John, and Amber's dad? No, we're saying it now. It's... It's one of the Zambelli family traits, that and our lazy eye. <laughs> ah, adorable. Itzy may have been a shepherd at some point. We know he had access to sheep leather. He may have been an itinerant coppersmith. Um, some of the items in his bag were related to copper working, and he did have a copper axe. But most dramatically, his body has a flint arrowhead lodged in his back. One that was mm. shot from around 100 feet away and severed a major artery, the cause of his death. So Itzy mm. is a murder victim. From examining traces of pollen in his digestive tract, scientists were able to place the date of Itzy's death at some time in late spring or early summer. In his last two days, they found he consumed three distinct meals and walked from an elevation of about 6,500 feet down to the valley floor and then up into the mountains again where he was found 10,500 feet up. Big hike. On his body was one prominent wound, other than the one from the arrowhead, a deep cut in his right hand between the thumb and forefinger down to the bone and potentially disabling. By the degree of healing seen on the wound, it was one to two days old. And so it's so like where if you had grabbed something, if you had grabbed the blade of a knife. Yes. Oh, <laughs> so it's believed that a few days before his death, Itzy was involved in a fight during the altercation. He grabbed a sharp object like a knife, which caused the wound to his right hand. Itzy's body doesn't show any defensive wounds, so it's likely he was the winner of that fight, and perhaps he seriously injured or even killed whoever he was fighting, and this may have been the motive for his death. It's certainly a reason to leave a place quickly without even finishing your bow and arrow, so we know that he attempted to make a bow and arrow as he fled down into the valley, so his bow was partially finished, Um, it was like only partially carved, so he like would have done more to it. And he just had, as we mentioned, maybe substandard bowstring available. So Itzy collected his gear, including a copper axe, food, and a first aid kit, and fled using some moss to treat his wound. He traveled up the rugged Schnalstall Valley, staying in the gorge to cover his tracks until he made it into the high mountains. Somewhere along the journey, he tried to build a bow and arrow, possibly to replace one he left behind in the fight, but his wounded hand meant he couldn't finish the job, leaving him without protection. At some point before his death, possibly when he was up high in the mountains again, he felt secure enough to eat a meal of cured ibex meat, but it wasn't too long before his enemies or their allies caught up with him. He was shot in the back and likely bled out from his wound in his final alpine resting spot. This is the part that often gets very dramatized and sort of 
treated in a splashy way, but it's rare that a person who lived so long ago was preserved well enough to give us the wealth of information that Utsi has provided. But he was, and I want to end with this because it's, this is what we do, this is really important, he was in fact a real person who experienced a life and was killed. So even as we marvel at the science and the picture of the past that we get, let's also remember that this is a human being we're talking about and not just an object to be interested in. And um, really or displayed in a museum for that One matter part of me doing my googling of him mm-hmm. was upsetting to see yeah no he's he's out on display and to really bring that home i will link in the show notes to a smithsonian magazine article about a study where researchers use ct scans of Uzi's vocal tract to recreate his voice it's gravelly and sort of middle middling pitch for a male And it's a little bit robotic because it is computer generated, but it is still haunting to hear. So if you are so inclined, go check that out. Thus concludes our episode on Utsi. And so we know that this is a very popular topic on history podcasts and similar shows, um, but we deserved a spot on our show. And and also we wanted to observe the 30th anniversary of him coming into our lives as archaeologists. But, and so we hope that we brought you something new and interesting this time around on our show. So mm-hmm. we'll be back in your ears next week with new content, which you can find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you like to and can listen. You can also find us on social media. On Facebook, we're The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we are at The Dirt Pod. And keep, keep an eye on those various places because we've got some stuff coming up. We're going to share some things. We've got some things to share. Um, And all of that is together on our website, thedirtpod.com, where you can find merch, past episodes, show notes, all those sweet, sweet show notes, a link to our Patreon, and even more. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we love you. Goodbye. Juice. Juice. (laughs) Which is... German for a casual goodbye, lest people think we're just saying juice. Like, I would love to drink some fruit juice. Auf Wiedersehen. Okay, bye. Bye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com members. Thanks again and have a great day.